Brother Damien and our dear brothers and sisters and our Lord Jesus Christ, we are to embark upon a very brief look at some of the issues about which James speaks in his little epistle of five chapters. And as we indicated last evening, we really almost do feel like we're being gunned down by James because he just does direct our attention to so many issues in such rapid fashion that we do have to do, as our brother Damien has indicated, we have to stop and read it very, very carefully so that we can find out what the issues are. And brethren and sisters, we know, we know that unless we are really dedicated Bible students, we won't be in the kingdom of God because the whole, the entirety of the scriptures have been given to us so that the engrafted word might be received with meekness and that we might learn to know our God and his son and in the process to come to know ourselves so that we may be able to stand in a right relationship before those two grand and illustrious beings in the heaven. And when we do finally come to the judgment seat of Christ, brethren and sisters, it will be simply because we are prepared to accept what the judge says that we will be accepted into his divine kingdom and given the gift of righteousness for which we all seek. Now in this chapter, James chapter 1, we indicated last night from John chapter 17 and at verse 3 that it would be a lot to do with the deity of the heavens. As a matter of fact, brethren and sisters, just with a very quick reading through James, you can find out that our Lord Jesus Christ is only ever mentioned once or twice directly but God himself really does flood the book and there are at least 12 items that we can learn about our God out of the first chapter alone. We want to try and enumerate some of those this morning as we go through. But the issues as they come before us come to a climax first of all in verse 12 and then he turns away to other matters down into verse 18 and then he gives us some personal exhortation about finding out what manner of persons we ought to be in all holy conversation and godliness. So first of all, the verses up to the end of verse 12 and these verses do indeed talk about the great benefactors, the great benefits that we can gain from the God of heaven and earth and it tells us the end result of a correct application of those benefits in our life. So coming now to verse 1, James very tersely introduces himself as a bond slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is one, brothers and sisters, who has no will of his own as we know bond slaves are wont to have. They only are interested in the service of their king and their master. And it's true to say that as our brother Tony has outlined for us this morning, the only qualification that is needed for rulership is service. 
And that's why we see our Lord Jesus Christ as one who took upon himself the form of a servant and made himself of no reputation so that in due course he might be elevated to the station which has been presented to us this morning. And so James says in verse 2, My brethren, a little phrase which recurs a number of times throughout the epistle, it's good to colour them in so that we will see the warmth with which James writes these very terse and biting and yet altogether necessary and lovely words. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. And one of the main things about which we want to speak this morning is the matter of temptation and sin. And sometimes we mix them up in our own minds. Sometimes we don't really know what we're talking about when we talk about these matters. So he tells us that we should count it all joy. He's not talking about the results of it, brethren and sisters. He's talking about the experience of it. And so the, the, the writer James is introducing us straight away to a very high and a very demanding idea. It's a very demanding idea, brothers and sisters, that when we are walking through this pathway of life, this veil of tears, as we often call it, as we wander through the valley of the shadow of death, that the experiences of life are to be met with joy. And he means that, but he doesn't mean joy in quite the sense that we understand it. He means to meet them with a calm delight. Not the bubbling effervescence of mirth, but he really does expect us to meet them with a calm and a sincere and an unmoved delight. And we can see that in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, can we not? As we look at him in all the vicissitudes that came upon him, we never see him ruffled. We never see him angry, not in any other cause than a righteous anger. We never see him upset, brothers and sisters. We only see him meeting every challenge of life with a calm and an unmoved delight because it was his delight to do his Father's will. And these particular things we are told in verse 2, these diverse temptations are really things that we are walking through as they fall all around upon us. It's almost the picture through the Greek words that are used here of walking through a rainstorm and the dropping out of every different aspect of life, there are temptations, there are trials. And he's particularly talking, brethren and sisters, not about temptation, but he's talking about trial. And we're going to see that there is a very real difference between those two things as we go through this chapter. And the reason why that should be so, verse 3 goes on to tell us, is that we've got to have some knowledge, we've got to have some wisdom as we fall into all these different trials of life that come upon us day by day, of which we know nothing in the days beforehand. And it's just as well we don't, isn't it? Or we'd probably all give up. 
And therefore he says that the reason or the, the way in which these things should be met is with a certain kind of knowledge that we have to know this, that the trying of your faith is designed to work patience. And that patience therefore, that is a faithful abiding under the trials, might have her perfect work. And we look particularly at that word perfect. We know it's the Greek word teleos. And sometimes we say, well that means mature. Look it up in the Greek dictionaries, brethren and sisters, and see what it does mean. It means that there is an appointed goal in the future to be striven for. In other words, it means not simply a maturity, it means that there is an end result that is being directed for the person who is so activated by the trials of life that fall upon him constantly. And the goal that is set out before him is going to be mature and entire. And all of these experiences of life are designed so that the man of God may be a mature person and that he will want nothing. He won't lack anything. And so that when the, the candidate appears before the judgment seat of Christ, there won't be anything wanting in him. Or oh, there will be plenty of deficiencies, brethren and sisters. There will be plenty of sin. There will be plenty of failure that the judge will draw to our attention, some of which we are aware and some of which we are not aware. But so far as our understanding of the purpose of God through the various trials of life is concerned, we know what it's all designed for. We can see, as this man writes to us in chapter 5 later on, we can see the end of the Lord. We can see the end for which he is doing whatever he is doing. And remember the words of the psalmist, remember the words of David, brethren and sisters, he simply said unto his God, he said, do unto me whatever you think fit. And when there is an attitude of mind like that, there will be rather amazing results both today and in the day to come because we will have seen the purpose for those things to come upon us and the purpose for which they come upon us is so that God might work out his end so that his purpose and brethren and sisters we're going to read in a day or two aren't we about all the instructions that were given to David about the building of the temple and we know that all those parts of the temple were made off-site and they were all honed and measured and properly squared so that they would fit into a particular position. It's exactly the same as us and our God, brethren and sisters. He knows his business a lot better than we do and he knows the means that are necessary whereby that end might be attained. And it's his work. It's not ours because he who has begun a good work in us is able to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. And that's the purpose for which trial, in whatever form it may come, is for us. It's so that he might make us a vessel that is fit for his use in the kingdom. And in our progress, in our sojourn through life, brothers and sisters, we know that in a great house there are vessels of honour and there are vessels of dishonour. 
And if somebody out there, if some big construction firm out there is going to make a building, they sit down with an architect and they say, this is what we've got in mind. And the architect draws all the drawings and he gives them many uh, different sheets of paper to explain to anybody who's going to be involved in the work as to what measurements, what size, what quality, what quantity is going to be used in that building. And all the time that the building is in progress, there's scaffolding up all around it and the people walking by have no idea what it's going to look like when it's finished. And brethren and sisters, in some respects it's like that with us. And would the building ever be completed without the scaffolding? Would the, ve- would the building ever be completed without vessels of dishonour? In the building process, brethren and sisters, they are just as important as the materials that go to the edifice that's going to be erected. And we have to be absolutely certain that we know the end of the Lord. We have to be absolutely certain, brethren and sisters, that we know the purpose for trial. And we therefore have to be absolutely and totally in subjection to the one who's working all things after the counsel of his own will. And if we're not, the clay cannot say to the potter, why hast thou made me thus? The shirt cannot say to the man who manufactured it and moulded it, what are you making? And even though we do not know what the Father is making, brothers and sisters, we simply have to accept that all the various conditions of life that drop around us every day all have a designer, they all have a master builder, they all have a purpose so that the honing of the bricks for the grand new Jerusalem might be honed in their right respect and there will not be, brothers and sisters, one ounce of trouble more than what we need. There won't be one ounce of evil more than what we need to fit us into the stones of that edifice. And it's there for us to count it, to accept it with calm delight, whatever the deity wishes to come upon us. And there's no other course of action that is open to us, brethren and sisters. And then he goes on to say to us in verse 5, Now I understand, he would say to his readers, that you may not all understand this, that you may not all have reached the point where you can accept it with a calm delight, all the various trials that are coming. So, if any of you lack wisdom, if you are not awake to wisdom, if you do not have the measure of wisdom that is available to you, no matter what vessel you may be, if you do not have the measure of wisdom that is available, well, ask it of God. And of course we turn right back to the incident of Solomon, don't we, as he was about to take the throne. And Yahweh asked him what he wanted. And the one thing he wanted, over and above any other consideration, was an ability, an ability, brethren and sisters, to lead God's people out and in. He wanted the ability to lead God's people out and in. He wanted to be able to take them out and to face the enemy head on. He wanted to be able to lead them out in faith and in wisdom 
and to return them safely again under the, bene- under the benediction of the high priest of Israel who would have made that benefit upon them as they went out in their various vicissitudes of life. And Solomon, brethren and sisters, freely admitted, the second wisest man that's ever lived, he freely admitted that we know nothing. And when we do admit that, brethren and sisters, then we will begin to know something as we ought to know it. But before that, there's nothing God can do with us. And so therefore, this little word at the beginning of verse 5, what an if. Who would ever dare say, well, I might lack some. Brothers and sisters, what Brother Robert said towards the end of his life was this. He said, during the period of life, we get a little bit of wisdom and what comes, comes late. And isn't it true? It's true of all of us, brothers and sisters, that compared with the almighty deity of heaven and his son, what wisdom have we got? If any of us lack wisdom, if any of us lack wisdom, who would dare say they don't? Well, there's only one way to get it, says James. Let him ask of God. And the ask is the hardest thing. Because to ask, brethren and sisters, is to admit a need. And the old man of the flesh doesn't like to admit needs. He thinks he's self-sufficient. He thinks he's got wisdom to conduct his life aright. And it's possible for us to believe a lot of the elements of the truth and to have never tasted of the wisdom of God. To have never asked to be given the wisdom of God so that we might see the course which he wants us to labour in. And now we learn something about our God in verse 5 because the God that is asked which of course definitely says that we have to make a sacrifice to ask, that this God gives to all, that is, all who ask, he gives to all liberally. And that word liberally, brothers and sisters, is not a terribly good translation in our AV. It's a valid one, but it's not the best one. Because it really does mean to give singly, to give with a singular purpose. And so God, brethren and sisters, we are quite clearly seen is a person who does not have duality of motive. He is a unity. He's got singular objectives and he won't be swerved aside from them as we will see later on down in verse 17. He's got a straight course in mind and if somebody is prepared with singularity of intent to ask for wisdom, he can unlock the vault of heaven, brothers and sisters, just like he can unlock it and pour down torrents of rain. Now he won't do that independently of our, of our effort. Of course he won't. But he will unlock the vault of heaven and he will give us wisdom and he will give us wisdom that shines out of this word because it's the only source to which we can go 
to obtain wisdom. And he gives to all men liberally and he upbraideth not. There's a very lovely little testimony about Brother Roberts that helps us understand what that means, brothers and sisters, because basically this word upbraideth not means to taunt. So you know the story, brother or sister, who may be a little bit older, and a young person comes up, maybe one of your own children, and and they say to you, Dad, what does this mean? Or don't you know what that means, son? You know it's about time you grew up a bit. God is not like that, brethren and sisters. And it's testified of Brother Roberts in the latter part of his life when he did have some wisdom that any question that was ever asked him was treated with the same singular, sincere and sober reflection. And that's what our God is like. He's not one to stand over and say, oh well, you know, it's a bit too bad if you don't know that by this stage in your life. You should have. He is prepared to give to all men, not only singly, but he doesn't look down either. He doesn't taunt. He doesn't deride. He doesn't chide somebody who has got the singular objective of obtaining wisdom. And we learn things about our God. In that We learn about his character. We know how it's applied. We come to know our God and to know his Son and therefore in some measure to also know ourselves because that's not natural, brethren and sisters, to get a simple question and to treat it with the awesome sincerity that we ought to. But God is always of that great sincerity and singularity that treats every question as though it was genuine, even if it isn't. And do we do that? Is that our intention when we get asked the simple thing? Or even when we get asked the difficult thing? And we are told in the end of verse 5, it shall be given him. But, but, let him ask in faith nothing wavering and he turns aside now to take us down to the beach on a windy day and he says you go down to the beach on the windy day and you see a wave of the sea and the wave of the sea apparently has no will of its own because if it's coming through the boulders that are strewn upon the on the beach it gets tossed this way and it gets tossed that way and it gets tossed that way and at the end of its life it foams up in a great frothy mass and it dissipates into nothing. He says, don't let, your answer, don't let your asking be like that. Don't ever become like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed because that's, a, that's an illustration of double-mindedness. It's an illustration of duality, at least duality, and it might be more than that. And so he goes on to say, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. It's true, brethren and sisters, that in the parable of the unjust judge, there was a widow woman who came to him, wasn't there? And she bothered him. And after a while, he said, well, I'll give her what she wants to get rid of her. It's not like that with God. Because persistent request to man is obnoxious but persistent request to God 
is delightsome. And we may not get it the first time. We may not get it the first year. It doesn't drop miraculously out of the skies, brothers and sisters, but it will come if we are persistent. And it will come not only because we have applied our minds to this word, but because we have seen the end which God is trying to work out in our lives. And while we will never be able to tell what position God has in store for any one of those stones in the kingdom of God, the objective is, brethren and sisters, to seek for glory and for honour and for immortality, yea, everlasting life in the kingdom of God so that in an uninhibited body we might be able to show the power of the resurrection of Christ. And so he ends that little section or rather he doesn't end that little section, but he ends that particular thought by saying to us in verse 8, a double-minded man is not just unstable in one or two or five or ten things, he's unstable in all his ways. He's got no certainty about life. You know, one day he appears to us like this, another day he appears to us like that. And I'll give an illustration, brothers and sisters, and some of you may be offended by it. But you know, a few years ago, and some of us still do, we used to make a pretty strong stand about people wearing beards. And today, you see, a brother will turn up in a beard, and it might be a full beard. And three months later he's got it shaven off and he's just grown a little bit on his chin. And then he might grow long sideburns. And all the time, brothers and sisters, he's telling us something. He's telling us something that he's not satisfied with this or with that or something else. He's got to change. And we need to be able to see that the outworking of double-mindedness can be seen in our life. That's just a very, it may be a wrong example. But beware of it in our own lives, brothers and sisters. To have stability in a very fast changing world and ecclesia is a wonderful thing to treasure. And some people will call you, they'll call you a hypocrite, they'll call you a lawmaker, they'll call you a law keeper, they'll call you anything they like. Don't let it bother you. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, but a singular-minded man is stable in all his ways. You don't find him him changing ship in midstream. You don't find him being driven with the wind and tossed. You find him absolutely rock-solid and, in a way, he is just as predictable as any wave of the shore is because you can predict what a wave is going to do. And you can predict what a stable man is going to do. And we can predict, brothers and sisters, what our God is going to do because we come to know him. We come to love his precepts. We come to love his ways. We come to see the end for which he is working. And we can predict what he'd do under given circumstances. And so now in verse 9 we read, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. And the great power of the resurrection, brethren and sisters, is seen in these verses because it's got an automatic leveller on it. 
And the automatic leveller is that the man of low degree is exalted and the rich man is suppressed because the power of the word of God does that to a man who is single-minded in all his ways. The rich man understands that he can't rejoice in his riches and he can't trust in his riches and so he's lowered down. But the man who is poor can't rejoice in poverty and the only thing he can receive is an exaltation from his status by coming into Christ in whom there is no male or female, there is no bond or free, there is neither Jew nor Greek. And so the levelling process of every valley being exalted and every mountain and hill being brought down is quite clearly shown to be the subject of James's words in these verses. And then he goes on to give the analogy of what life is all about, what life is worth. The sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat but it withereth the grass and the flower thereof falleth and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. And then the conclusion of this little section in verse 12 is, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he comes to the anastasis, and that's not the word there by the way, brothers and sisters, but when he comes to the anastasis, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now it is here that we've got to do some earnest thinking. Take our minds back to the sixth chapter of Matthew when the apostle or when the disciples of Christ asked their Lord to teach them how to pray. And one of the clauses in that prayer was lead us not into temptation. What does it mean? And now, brothers and sisters, we have got to think through this matter of temptation and sin. What really is temptation? There's only one Greek word for it in the whole of the New Testament. There are variations of verbs and adjectives and all that sort of thing, but that's not our intent to talk about them this morning. What really is temptation? And so far we have seen that it's the trying of our faith. But in the prayer of of Christ, if you put that little definition in there, lead us not into the trying of our faith, we are asking for something that is the very basis of our preparation for the kingdom. And we're asking for it not to happen. Lead us not into temptation. So what must this mean? When we read that blessed is the man who endures temptation, it's got to mean blessed is the man who endures the trying of his faith. It's got to mean blessed is the man who endures or who faithfully abides under, who patiently endures being put to the test. And what's he going to receive? When he's tried, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Brethren and sisters, it's very easy to see what that's all about, isn't it? But what about the next verses? Because now 
the, the, the writer James now is going to turn right around and he's going to analyse a man who, like his forefather Adam, failed and blamed God for his failure. And isn't that easy? Don't we sometimes say, brothers and sisters, the way's too hard? It's not fair? Why did that happen to me? Why should I have to bear this? Isn't that, brothers and sisters, calling into question the work of the potter? How dare we call into question the work of the potter? And if we have got the attitude of David to say to our Father in heaven, do whatever you like to me, how would ever we ask why? How would ever we put up an argument and say, this is not right, this is not fair, I don't deserve this. Brothers and sisters, now we look at verse 13 and it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Now let us put our little definition in there about the trying of our faith. Let no man say when he has his faith tried, I am tried of God. Is that true? Is that right? That's fundamentally flawed. We know that, don't we, brothers and sisters? Because it is God who reigns all around us, all the trials of life, that we are meant to meet with a singular act, with a singular intention. So he's saying, let no man say when I am put to the test, if that's what he's saying, I am put to the test by God. For God cannot be put to the test, neither does he put to the test any man. It's all false. Remember, brothers and sisters, back at Meribah and Massah, when the people tempted Yahweh and they said, Is Yahweh among us or not? Brothers and sisters, it's a very easy thing to put God to the test. But you can't tempt God. We cannot draw God over a line of prohibition and that's what this verse is talking about. Let no man say when he is drawn over a line of prohibition it's God's fault because God's not in that business. This is something that God cannot do And neither does he do it. Brethren and sisters, you think of Adam. What did he say? He says, the woman that thou gavest unto me, she gave me of the fruit. Yes, and I failed. But it was all your fault. And verse 16 says to us, brethren and sisters, do not err. Do not err, my beloved brethren. You see the feeling with which James says those words? He says, brethren, here's a mistake that's been made over and over and over and over and over and over again 
since the first man ever sinned. Do not err, my beloved brethren. And then we go back into verse 14 and 15 and it says, Every man fails because that's the whole context of these verses. Every man fails when he is drawn away of his own lust. It's nothing to do with what God did. He's drawn away of his own lust and he's trapped because that's the meaning of the word enticed. He's trapped as soon as he is drawn away. What's he drawn away from, brethren and sisters? He's drawn away from the thinking of his God. He's drawn away from the singularity of the purpose. He's drawn away from the wisdom that he asked for. He's drawn away from the wisdom that God was pleased to give him. And when he's drawn away from that wisdom, brethren and sisters, he's had it. And it doesn't have to show in outward work. It does not have to show in outward work. And James is absolutely following the teaching of his half-brother when he said, you look on a woman, you lust after in her heart, in your heart, there's no outward show, but you've done it. And that's what James is saying here, brothers and sisters. And in verse 15, when it seems to imply in our AV that there is a further stage of development it's not talking about a further stage of development. Have a look in the Diaglot. Have a look in Rotherham and you will find that verse 15 is saying that back in verse 14 the evil lust has already conceived because the man's ensnared by his own thoughts. And when he's ensnared by his own thoughts if it's in the language of Proverbs chapter 7 about the harlot who seduced the simple man, there's only one thing to find out. And that is whether the product is a boy or a girl. That's the only thing to find out. The sin's been committed ages before that. And so therefore, verse 15 says, then when lust, then the inordinate affection already having conceived, it brings forth an action. Yes, it brings forth a result. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now, brethren and sisters, how do we know this is talking about a man who fails? We only have to think it through a little like this. Why do we die? Do we die because we have sinned? If we only die because we have sinned, why did Christ die? Why does stillbirth ever occur? We don't die because we sin, brothers and sisters. We die because we inherit all the physical effects of Adam's sin. And we have no other inheritance than to die. Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. That's our inheritance. But this particular matter is said to bring forth death. And doctrinally, brothers and sisters, 
that's not consistent with what we know about the results of Adam's transgression. You see, we know this man is a man who has failed because the man who succeeds is dealt with in verse 12. He's going to receive a crown of life. But the person who fails and who blames God, what's he going to get? He's going to be raised from the dead, the just and the unjust alike, and the just will receive a crown of life and the other will go into everlasting death. That's what James is talking about. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Take earnest notice of what I am saying because you've got a choice as to whether you will operate faithfully and singularly on the basis of the trials of life or whether you will face them with a duality of motive and blame God because he made it too hard. And if you blame God and tell him he's made it too hard, there's only one end result. And that is that when the judgment comes, when he's tried, he'll get the very opposite of a crown of life. And just remember this, brethren, he goes on to say in verse 17, God only gives good and perfect gifts. He's singular in his intention. He's singular in his wisdom. He's singular in his benefaction. He'll only give good and perfect gifts and they come down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Because... He's got a will. This God has got a will. He's a giver of good and perfect gift and he's got a will. And he was the one who begat you for this express purpose of trying to induce in you, brethren and sisters, the whole reason for trial. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And we just want to conclude our thoughts this morning, brothers and sisters, by very quickly running through the things that we can learn about our God out of this chapter. They are numerous. Verse 5. Uncle Barry, you didn't speak on it. In verse 5, he gives liberally. In the same verse, he (coughs) does not rail or defame. In verse 9, he exalts the poor. In verse 9 again, or rather verse 10, he abases the rich. I'm going to have to do this fairly small because they won't all fit on the page. In verse 12, he promises and will give a crown of life. I won't write the rest in. In verse 13, he cannot... He cannot be tempted. 
In verse 13 again, he does not And that's in the sense of causing to fail. He does not tempt any man. In verse 17, he gives good and perfect gift, gifts. In verse 17 again, he is unvarying. In verse 18, he has a will and he makes decisions. In verse 20, we are told he is righteous. And in verse 27, he is the God <coughs> of the fatherless and the widow. So we've got quite a list, haven't we, brothers and sisters, now that we can come <coughs> to know our God and therefore also to know Jesus Christ whom he hath sent. Just to conclude, we want to look at verse 26 because it will introduce what we have to say tomorrow morning, God willing. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue. You see what he's saying, brothers and sisters? If any man seems to be religious, you can judge it almost unerringly on how he uses his tongue. He doesn't use any other criteria. But then he goes on to say in verse 27 that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. They are both aspects of pure religion, brethren and sisters, that don't attract any bouquets for doing them. Aren't they? They are both aspects of the purity of God's religion that do not attract any bouquets when we do them. And it's best that they don't because the more prominent and open and publicised a thing is, the more dangerous it is and the more greatly it will be discounted in value by the God who weighs everything fairly. And that's really the whole burden of Matthew chapter 5 to 7, isn't it? That if you want to be seen for having done anything, it's going to be discounted in value as to the measure of the judge of all the earth. <coughs> and so, brethren and sisters, we've got to awake to, right, to wisdom. And we cannot afford to err, especially in the sense that the persons to whom James Wright were erring in his days, they were failing, they were blaming God and there were others who were the edifice that were behind the, the scaffolding that will receive a crown of life that fadeth not away when the judge of all the earth comes to raise the dead and to judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom.